Welcome to READ, the Research, Education, and Advocacy Podcast. In this series, prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. READ is produced by the Windward Institute. I'm Danielle Scarano, Windward's research coordinator and a classroom teacher. In full transparency, I'm recording this episode from the living room of my own home. Instead of the typical pre-show jitters, my emotions have been replaced with some fear, some stress, anxiety for my family, my friends, healthcare workers battling this outbreak, and other neighbors in essential jobs, my students, their families, my city, and frankly, humanity. And I know I'm not alone. With that being said, I'm lucky to have access to expertise and resources and the platform to share this information with our listeners through the Read podcast. And I'm most appreciative to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Rachel Bussman to talk about navigating anxiety during COVID-19 and how we can best support our children during this time period. Dr. Bussman is the Senior Director of the Anxiety Disorder Center and Director of the Selective Mutism Service at the Child Mind Institute. She leads a team of clinicians providing evaluation and innovative treatment to children with selective mutism and is the past president of the Selective Mutism Association. Dr. Bussman has extensive experience providing cognitive behavioral therapy to children, teenagers, and young adults struggling with anxiety disorders, school difficulties, and behavioral problems. She has specific interests and expertise in the evaluation and treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, separation anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, and specific phobias. In addition to treating children in both inpatient and outpatient settings, Dr. Bussman has taught and supervised residents and fellows and continues to lecture extensively on topics, including the evidence-based assessment and treatment of anxiety disorders in children and teens. She is dedicated to establishing trust and instilling a sense of hope in her patients as she helps them on their path to recovery. Wow, Dr. Bussman, in reading your bio, I am so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I I was listening to you be so honest and transparent and have such admiration for the teachers and, and staff that are just working so hard in this really difficult time. Well, we appreciate it. And I know the Windward community has been lucky to learn from you from previous lectures. We're honored to have you for the 2020 community lecture in the fall. But before I get too ahead of myself, I know we were talking about it before we recorded, I have to focus on the here and now, and that's COVID-19 and the ensuing ramifications. How are you and your family managing during this time period? Thank you so much for asking. I think like you were saying, and probably like everybody really anywhere, it's it's a bit of up and down, right? So it's managing um, emotions and thoughts on a nearly hour by hour basis. And some days are great and some days are challenging. And, um, you know, I am also now a homeschool teacher and a full time working from home person. So it is it is definitely a challenge. And we're actually using the Zoom platform with WinWord, which has been amazing. But, you know, I'm sitting across the screen with my students and you know, living this new life, I imagine, for students and children is anxiety provoking. So what what seems to be the most common stressors amongst children during this time? It's a really great question and an important one to start with. Um, I think that I have both clinically and just personally, you know, in terms of like reaching out to friends and chatting, I think um, for kids, 
first of all, I'll say that a lot of kids are so resilient. And maybe you see this with the kids that you're zooming with on the screen, that some of them are really managing really well, which is awesome. And I think is a really hopeful, hopeful takeaway. I do see that some of the things that kids I'm working with really of all ages um, that are causing stress, one is sort of the the changing demands um, on maybe a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. So what I mean is, you know, everybody's sort of learning the e-learning platform as they go. I can speak for my son that like what he was doing two weeks ago is different than what he's doing this week. So I think that naturally and really normally those changes can cause stress for kids when they see the number of items in an inbox or just the number of tasks to do. And I think there are some really great tips for us to to manage that. Um, I think secondly, kids have some stress um, and maybe anxiety isn't the right word, but feel stressed and maybe are having other emotions about uncertainty, right? So what is going to be, you know, the landscape a month from now, or will I go to sleepaway camp or will I have graduation? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty and that can make kids feel stressed. So I'll just lead with those and, and see where that takes us. Stress from change and uncertainty seem to be one common ones that I've been seeing with my students. Um, and you did differentiate between stress and anxiety. So in terms of stress and anxiety, what appears to be, I guess, normal levels as opposed to, you know, when should parents and educators be concerned when that seems to be too high for our students? For sure. And I think it's so important to start with that because we are all under a, a really unprecedented level of stress, um, meaning that we have this situation that's happening that really no one has a context for, right? Most of us have never gone through something like this. So it's natural to have, to feel stressed, to feel um, a little more irritable, even to feel anxious about it. And that is normal. And I think everybody would agree from adults all the way down to kids that adapting and adjusting to that change is just normal. I think what we look for when when parents are saying, when should I be more concerned is, first of all, every child is different, right? And I think when we when I lecture or give a talk to parents, I often will say, hey, do you have more than one child. Are they different or they're the same? And of course, people laugh because they say, well, yeah, my kids are, you know, even twins can be really different. So I think you have to first know your own child. So if your own your, your specific child is one who sleeps a certain amount and eats in a certain way and sometimes gets fluctuations in their mood and that's the same, you shouldn't be overly worried. I think what we look for are persisting um, changes in behavior, mood, eating, sleep, and that doesn't necessarily mean the alarm bells go off, but then we want to key in and sort of zoom into what is going on. So meaning if your child is just really like bursting into tears a whole lot and it doesn't just happen the first day they get all of their math assignments, then you want to pay a little bit more attention to are they eating enough? Are they hydrating enough? What's sleep like? Are we talking about news, you know, way too much? Just those kinds of things. But knowing that there is really a variation in what your child is experiencing right now. So we have to be kind of kind to that sort of taking that temperature, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, beyond the let's reduce social, you know, the the access to news and the social media, I mean, 
the endless news cycle about COVID-19 and how the world really is responding can be stressful for everyone. I hear what you're saying in terms of monitoring sleep patterns and good nutrition. Is it more responsive um, strategies that we could use or are there more proactive strategies that parents and I guess more parents can use to help their children sort of cope? And educators too, I think, because educators can sort of set you know, can, can communicate, let's say to parents, Hey guys, remember some of these routines are super important and here's a place you can go to get more resources. Right. So I think from the parent perspective, at least I in full transparency, you know, when I see an additional communication from either work, school or wherever it, it quick first, my first response is, Oh my gosh, here's one more thing I need to be doing or a judgment. Oh my gosh, am I not doing this to the best of my ability. So I think the first message to parents is you're doing the best you can and not every tip or strategy is going to be one that you incorporate. That being said, I think things like sleep, nutrition, physical exercise, um, the implementation of routines, but also some relaxing of rules those are all things that are really important. So at least in my house, we, while we're a little more flexible around bedtime, it's not a free for all, right? My son who's nine and a half still knows that it is a, a school week, even though he's not attending school in the traditional sense. So we, while even though his bedtime is maybe 15, 20 minutes later than it normally is, we're not moving the bar completely because I just know I see the ramifications over the next several days. Similarly, you know, we're not eating just when we're hungry. We're still having a snack at a certain time or I'm making sure that he's getting, you know, a healthy snack as opposed to just a granola bar, because I know that those things are important for my particular situation for my son. In terms of language, I know you spoke earlier in our conversation that children are worried about whether they're going to have summer camp. Um, I've heard from friends and um, educators outside of Winward and um, that some students are wondering, you know, about the well-being of their family members, right? You know, their grandparents. Um, what are some language that we could use when children express those types of fears? That I feel like is is one of the most important components of helping to build resiliency. So I think what what is hard to separate, and it's not a problem, of course, it's what happens is we as adults are thinking about our own thoughts and feelings about a situation when we're talking to another person, right? So just as a set, totally separate example, if I had a bad experience with math as a child, I have to be aware when I communicate with my son about math, not to say things like, oh, this could be really hard, but, or I remember when I really hated multiplication, right? We can sometimes infuse our conversations with what we imagine our child could be thinking. So similarly, it's really important to use really simple language or language that's appropriate to the age or developmental level. And if you're not sure what that means, there's some great resources out there. NPR put out a cartoon about COVID-19 for kids, like a comic strip uh, several weeks ago. So that's helpful. I think um, find asking your child first, what's, what are you thinking about? What are your questions? What do you know really helps frame the rest of your conversation. Because if your child explains to you pretty well what they understand the situation to be, and you say, wow, like that's a great understanding. Do you have any questions? And they say, no. 
then that actually is okay to stop there versus maybe you have an 11 or 12 year old or older and they say, well, I heard that we're going to be doing this till August, or I heard that, you know, a lot of kids are dying. Then you can say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you explained this to me. Let me correct inaccuracies and also say for the things that you actually don't have an answer for, like sleepaway camp, for example, here's the thing. I don't know the answer to whether or not we're going to be doing our summer vacation or our reunion with your family. I promise I'll keep you posted. I'm still thinking about it too. But right now, these are the things that we should be thinking about and working on. And I want you to keep coming to me when you have these questions. That's excellent language too. It seems to me that it's, you know, validating what the children are saying, um, really mitigating their their stressors, really providing that honest answer, um, and then uh, consistently checking in with them. Yeah, I think it's there's sometimes fear that like we're not supposed to talk about something because it's going to make my child more anxious. Just like I shouldn't mention something because I'm going to plant an idea in their head. And that just usually is not the case. Kids will be really good about saying, why are you talking about that? I wasn't even thinking about that. Or, yeah, actually, that's really on my mind. And they're going to want to talk about it. So I think you shouldn't be afraid to open a door of communication, but also not push all the things that you as a parent are thinking about. Mm -hmm. That's good information. Now, on the educator's perspective, and mostly from the educator's perspective, you know, you did mention that educators can provide some good guidance on routines. Truthfully, you know, I'm trying to maintain this you know, high level of connection and community that I cultivated with my classes through the screen. But, you know, it doesn't, obviously, we're not physically together, so the connection can feel a little lost. Um, so what do you think educators should be particularly mindful of when interacting with children? And I think specifically mostly on the social emotional level, because, you know, from, and this may just be my perspective, but, you know, I feel that sometimes it's much easier for me to cultivate belonging, for example, um, when I'm actually in my classroom as opposed to on the screen. So how can educators really support children? Well, you're asking all the right questions. And I think I've heard a lot that people feel a sense of belonging just from the efforts that we're making in terms of, yes, Zoom is not the same as being able to walk over to your student and look them in the eye and share a smile or put a hand on a shoulder and say, wow, that was like amazing work. On the other hand, I think just being transparent, right? So saying, wow, this is really new for me. This is hard for me. And I miss you guys so much. And this is how we're going to make this an interactive environment, or this is how we're going to practice um, this new way of being, right? So that's one. I also think that just educators should be really mindful of the needs of their students, right? So again, these, I have heard a couple of times from kids and families from all over, private, public schools, special education, not, that some of the things that are overwhelming, especially for middle schoolers, is when they're getting multiple communications multiple times a day from multiple teachers. So imagine if you had, you know, one boss or one supervisor, but then imagine if you had five and they all send you different pieces of information. And so remembering that kids are probably not going to say something like, oh, well, this is just about uh, one 
assignment that's probably going to take me 10 minutes. They're probably going to see a volume of demands. And so I do think that planning ahead and setting expectations just by communicating what kids can expect actually is going to decrease their anxiety. And maybe when schools have multiple teachers or multiple um, sort of silos of educational experience, streamlining that a little bit can probably mitigate some kids' anxiety and parent anxiety. That's a good point. Um, I, I, I know that in speaking to educators and parents and children from other, from other schools too, the influx of information can be overwhelming. Providing those streamlining sources would be really helpful. That's a good point. And I don't know that it has to be, you know, obviously every teacher is also dealing with the newness of that, the learning platform. And so not every teacher can communicate seamlessly with every other. But even I, I just think a few bullet points in an email to a kid like, hey, be aware you're going to get a bunch of emails. Don't don't worry. This is just information, but it doesn't mean it has to be done immediately. So I think that is really helpful. And then I also just think sometimes having a brief check in with your student one on one or in a small group, even just to say, hey, how are you doing? What's something that's going well? What's a question you have? Those even under five minute interactions can really do what what you were alluding to, which is that sense of belongingness and keeping connected. Kids are going to feel much more contained that way. They're going to feel um, taken care of. And I think it's going to ultimately help the learning process in the weeks to come because kids are going to feel like, oh, she or he gets it. They get that this is really hard for me. Yeah, even behind a screen, you can make a children seen valued and heard. A hundred percent, yeah. Just by those simple questions. Um, so one of my last questions is, you know, parents and educators are certainly models for their children and students. So I know we've talked a little bit about this, that children aren't the only ones feeling the stress and fear. Um, I mentioned it in the beginning of the podcast. So if you were to think of three strategies, it could be I don't want to hold you to three, but <laughs> okay. <you know. laughs> like, you know, you can't come up with three, but um, what are a few strategies that we as adults can do to mitigate our own fear and stress and maybe even higher levels of anxiety? I think it's an amazing question. And I actually did a, a Facebook live for child mind just yesterday. I, I had to think for a second because we know the days blur together on self-care. And so I'm going to say that self-care for educators and parents is really important. And what I mean by that is not um, what I was calling yesterday indulgence. Like I don't mean binge watch a show, lay on your bed for four hours. Like that, that's not what I mean by self-care. I mean, just attending to your own hydration, nutrition, needing a movement break, taking a five minute walk, right? Those things to help sustain your own energy resources throughout the day is going to help adults be good models for their kids. So that's one. I also think that it is natural to have a level of anxiety and stress right now. And at the same time, and it's easier said than done, we have to model non-anxious coping for our kids, which basically means that if you're in a partnership with a spouse or you have a, a, a best friend or a parent that lives outside of the home, Talk to them about the stress or anxiety you're feeling, but don't share that with your kids. So kids are great um, 
listeners and observers. And we probably know a time we've tried to get our child's attention by calling their name when they're doing something fun and they don't hear you. And then you're talking with your spouse 15 feet away and they hear everything you're saying. So we want to remind families that kids are aware of what you're saying and doing. So if you need to vent, if you need to chat, do that with someone that's another trusted adult and and then sort of model non-anxious coping. Even if it means you're saying, I know this is hard and I know we'll get through it and you're not 100% confident that you feel that in that moment, sometimes it's actually important to fake it before you really feel it. Um, and then the last thing I would say is really find your village. So I think that we... Um, whether your village is um, other classroom parents, maybe even people you've never spoken to, right? So I've like gotten more people in my village in the last month. And some of those people who are now in my village are people I didn't really know or have a strong relationship with. So your village could be your, your best friend, your village could be your spouse, your village could be your parent in another town, a co-teacher, but finding your village is going to help you back to what you were saying before, feel a sense of connectedness and belonging. So I think really thinking about who is your in your village and can help you through the situation is really going to, I think, help us as adults have resilience. Excellent. Those are some great strategies. And um, I hope the the computer didn't pick up all the copious note-taking I was Oh, <laughs> I, was I didn't using. hear anything. <laughs> Excellent. With every interview, I usually ask the guests on some top resources that would really help parents and educators. And you mentioned NPR, you mentioned the Facebook Live that you did with Child Mind Institute. Where are some other resources that educators and parents can look toward to help during this time? Absolutely. So I would say, so at childmind.org forward slash coronavirus, we have a whole, um, not just page, a whole set of resources for families, tips, strategies, daily Facebook parenting advice. We also do have two times a day, Monday through Friday. So at 10 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have a Facebook Live on a variety of topics. So I did self-care in the morning. There was one on autism in the afternoon. I also, yes, NPR, um, I can get you the link, but if you look up, if someone looks up NPR comic strip on coronavirus, you'll see um, a comic strip that's, I think, very helpful for kids. I think in terms of where to get information about sort of the current health crisis, I really think you can get pulled into a rabbit hole of Googling, and I don't recommend that for families. I think that increases stress. So looking to the CDC is an excellent source of information. And I think for families who attend Winward, getting information directly from the school. So I would direct families that attend other schools to be in communication with your own school and your own town, rather than looking at other people's schools and towns, because I think everyone's information is very individualized. Those are great points. I think the Googling rabbit hole can be very tempting. It is really tempting. And I think just, I think when you start to do a web search, one thing that you can remind yourself is, am I expecting to get new information right now? And maybe if you're five minutes in, have I learned anything? Is this helpful? Or is my anxiety or other emotions that are not, um, you know, helpful emotions going up? And if the answer is yes, it's probably a good time to stop. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, I will definitely put the resources on the Read podcast page as well as we have more resources being up, uploaded to the Windward School and Windward Institute. Um, and admittedly, I check Child Mind Institute probably multiple times a day. So that's really good to remind listeners. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Bussman. I really appreciate you taking the time to interview with me this morning. Oh, it was it was absolutely my pleasure. And of course, if, if folks have questions, um, I hope they visit our website. Or if you need to reach me at any point, I am more than available and happy to help. Thank you. And of course, we look forward to your community lecture in 2020. Yes, it's in 2020. And I just hope we are in a, a, a much more, you know, in a better time. And I'm hopeful that we will be. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Read. To learn more about Read or upcoming episodes, visit readpodcast.org. You can also access my top Read bookmarks or top moments from each episode, as well as resources that Dr. Bussman has talked about in this episode by visiting each episode page on our website. My goal is to continue to connect and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research and education. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. You can like or follow Windward's social media pages to find out more about upcoming speakers, episodes, and events. Until next time, readers. 